All right, here we go. Welcome, everyone, to the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. I am your host, Neil Pollock, the greatest living American writer, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and so much more. Thank you for joining us. We have a great show this week. We're going to talk with Stephen Garrett about the new Marvel Cinematic Universe movie. I know, a new Marvel Cinematic Universe movie. It's been so long. This one's called Eternals, and it is an eternity to watch this thing. Let me tell you, Stephen will be here to talk about that. And we're also going to talk to William Schwartz, frequent Book and Film Globe contributor, about the new Netflix animated show, Inside Job. But first, I am going to give you a little lesson on censorship. It's a necessary evil. This is an issue that continues to come up with surprising regularity in our society. It's amazing that people don't recognize that censorship is wrong, whether you agree with or disagree with something. We're going to lead off this week with Stevie Ray Vaughan, a classic blues song called Texas Flood. There's been a flood of censorship news about Texas this week. I didn't realize it's a bit of a stretch for a song, but an old-fashioned Texas blues jam never hurt anyone. We'll be right back. All of the telephone lines are down. All right, so let's talk about censorship. We talk about censorship a lot on this website, and I published a couple of articles this week about this subject. The first was about the Virginia governor's rates, now mercifully over. It was absurd to me that Toni Morrison's beloved was a debate point in uh, the governor's race. You know, there was a uh, Republican activist who said that her son had received nightmares from reading Beloved by Toni Morrison. He was in high school 10 years ago. And that became a, a point of debate. Between the Republican and the Democrat, uh, Terry McAuliffe uh, said that the Republican candidate was Glenn Youngkin was trying to ban uh, Beloved from schools. And Youngkin said no. He was just trying to uh, warn parents that there was some material in Beloved that might be objectionable. And there were scenes of rape in it. And, and there was bestiality, et cetera, et cetera. All true. But it's also true that we're talking about high school senior level English, AP English. 17 and 18 year olds are able to handle difficult themes and are able to handle a novel by a Nobel Prize winning writer. There should be, it, this shouldn't be something that's debated in a gubernatorial race. This shouldn't be something that um, people are fighting over in order to win election to run a state uh, and control, you know, highway spending. And it just it makes no sense to me that the government is involved in this. And then, you know, I wrote about uh, this situation in Texas where a state representative, a fairly powerful one named Matt Krauss, uh, sent an inquiry letter to educators around the state asking them to review what's in school libraries and to talk and to try to maybe restrict certain kinds of things. 800 books or pieces of literature. A lot of it was modern stuff about transgender identity. There was some uh, very pro-choice material LGBTQ rights, et cetera, et cetera, but also classics like The Confessions of Nat Turner by William Styron and a novel by Michael Crichton is in there, uh, various other things, uh, V for Vendetta by Alan Moore. 
So, you know, it's anything that um, challenges the state from a left-wing perspective, anything that uh, challenges sort of conservative views of sexuality and abortion and gender identity. All these things are open to debate in classrooms and elsewhere, but the idea that the government should superimpose upon schools what they should be able to keep in their libraries is disturbing to me. And then Governor Greg Abbott, who's one of the most craven political opportunists to ever walk the earth, at least in the state of Texas, which is saying a lot, he gets in there and starts trying to intimidate educators. And censorship should is a political football. There's a sort of moral majority thing going on among the right, and they're trying to stem the tide of social and gender change and sexuality change. And the stuff's just going on in the culture. And I don't think schools are promoting it necessarily. I mean, maybe some are, but as much as they are reflecting it. And the way to go at it is not to ban books from libraries. If kids are reading, you should let them read what they want. They're only reading this stuff is because they're interested in it, not because they're being forced to, not because uh, there's an active propaganda campaign. You know what? Even if there is an active propaganda campaign to get kids to change their gender identity or be gay or get abortions or whatever, which, which there isn't, <laughs> the way to address that is not through banning books. Banning books is never the answer. Now, most people I know, the vast majority of people I know are liberal left types, and they're all up in arms about banning Toni Morrison's beloved and the Texas list and Governor Abbott's letter, you know, and they should be. But I also I also would warn them not to get so high and mighty, right? Because I write about this in an article this week, you know, and admittedly, this is in Canada where it's like the entire country is the mainstream Democratic Party, but there are districts in Canada that are burning books as part of a national reconciliation for the way the country has treated its first peoples. There's a school district in Ottawa that has banned Lord of the Flies and The Handmaid's Tale. Oh, and To Kill a Mockingbird, of course, a book that must be banned because they promote you know white male patriarchal power structures. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of Lord of the Flies, I think it's a book that's a critique of white male patriarchal colonial power structures. When I think of To Kill a Mockingbird, yeah, it's a little dated, but it's also an anti-racism book. And The Handmaid's Tale is literally a book about the dangers of the patriarchy, but they're trying to ban it because Margaret Atwood has come out and said that women are women and men are men. She's on the J.K. Rowling train. And for that, she is a suspect character. I just feel like everyone is a suddenly a suspect character for our ideologically polarized times. The right wants to ban stuff it finds offensive. The left wants to ban stuff it finds offensive. And the whole point of literature is to challenge and to offend and to annoy and to make people think. And government should not get in the way of that under no circumstances for any ideological reason. I can think of only one thing that really ties Beloved and Lord of the Flies together, and that's that they were both written by Nobel Prize-winning authors. Toni Morrison won hers in 1993. William Golding won his in 1983. You can even say they were contemporaries. They were alive at the same time. They won their Nobel Prizes in the same generation. You can argue that the Nobel Prize doesn't always honor truly the best writers. There are writers who maybe have won it who shouldn't have, and writers who should have won it but didn't. But I don't think anyone 
who won a Nobel Prize would ever say books by a Nobel Prize winner should be banned because they're offensive or because they're challenging. We're going to continue to stand up for this on Book and Film Globe, and I hope that you will as well. Here endeth the lesson. Now let's talk about movies. Marvel Cinematic Universe this week. I, that's something you could say several times a year. <laughs> and, and Stephen Garrett is here. He and I have both uh, suffered through Eternals, which is the new Marvel uh, movie. I, I actually, um, my my screening of Eternals just ended about 25 minutes ago. Uh, I went to the local Alamo Draft House. Stephen, you saw this a few days ago. I did, yes. But but it feels like it feels like an eternity being in that movie theater. <laughs> well, th- 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 yeah. This thing, this this is a legendary turkey, I would say. Wow. Compared with other Marvel films, or just in, just in general, general, in general, I mean, Mar- Marvel has finally produced its turkey, its super turkey. <laughs> uh, that's not to say it doesn't have some cool stuff in it, and you know, it, it'll connect fine to the rest of the universe. There's some good characters and all that, but the actual movie itself, it was like a like a sea science fiction movie from 1984. I thought. Maybe yeah, just- yeah, no, I know. I think that's that's fair. I don't I don't think it's horrible. It is far too long and there's too much information and too little story, if I can make that distinction. And there are way too many char- characters and I don't really feel emotionally connected to many of them. But I think people will point to this as a landmark film. It has the first, I guess it's one of the first gay superhero characters. It has a South Asian superhero character. You know, Sprite is actually played by a non-binary actor, although I think they refer to her as a she. But it, it feels very of the moment in terms of the politics of the filmmaking and the characters represented. But in terms of the story itself, it is the same old, same old. The world is about to be destroyed unless there are some magical beings who will save us. Yes, you know, it's a very multicultural movie, but that's not enough. Obviously, like, my problem is not that there is a black gay guy. In the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, or a I sex care. scene. It's the first Marvel movie with a sex scene. I mean, sex. I mean, it's very Ken and Barbie. It's like naked backs. Somehow, somehow on the beach in, in, in ancient Mesopotamia. <laughs> How did they pull that up? But I, there were just there were just I thought some really lousy performances in this movie. Richard Madden plays a superhero named Icarus. A lot of these superheroes have like classical names. There's one named Gilgamesh. They're like creatures from Earth's mythology. And, and he, Richard Madden, who is um, Rob Stark in Game of Thrones, he was he was horrible. <laughs> His character is basically that guy with the laser eyes from uh, X-Men or rather that part of Superman. He was kind of like a Superman guy in that he could fly around and shoot laser beams out of his eyes. Right. But there was a character character like that in the Amazon Prime show, The Boys, 
And his name is Homelander, who's far more entertaining and interesting than than this Marvel version of Superman, who's very, very bland. Um, you know, I actually thought that um, and Brian Tyree Henry, who was the gay black character, he was terrible. Well, well, <laughs> that, that scene where he's on his knees in Hiroshima saying, what have I done? Yeah, what have I done? I mean, I don't understand his superpower is to give technology sparingly to humans over <laughs> millennia. He can make he makes models with his hands. He makes models with his hands. Don't yeah. we all? Don't we? And then all? then just another just a, a lousy performance from Selma Hayek. Wow. Yeah, and Angelina Jolie playing not Athena, even though it's totally Athena, but it's actually Athena. And she, they even say, "Don't call me Athena. I'm Athena." There were some moments where she was like leaning against countertops, so I was like, "Yeah, that's that's Angelina Jolie." <laughs> uh, I actually thought that uh, that Kumail Nanjiani. Uh, who plays uh, a, a character named Kingo, who sounds like something from Rudyard Kipling or like, right, you know, right exactly. Um, yeah. like, I thought he actually brought like some zip to the, to the whole thing. Like he really like, he see, he was one of the few people in the movie who seemed like he was enjoying himself. Well, but it's also, he is one of the characters who's very kind of Marvel wink, wink, self-referential, right? Cause he had that manservant going around with a camera, making a documentary about the Eternals who are supposed to be kind of a secret and not necessarily revealed to mankind. And yet he's a superstar Bollywood actor who is basically admitting that he's an Eternal, which is just head scratching. I didn't really understand that. It did, but at least it was entertaining to watch. Yeah. yeah. Whereas where, where a lot of the other characters, those motivations are extremely unclear. I mean, unless you put it in the context of this enormous galactic plot. It's like it's like standing under a waterfall. They just keep dumping all this in this world building, universe building on you. And I'm just like, I mean, it has got to be. I don't I can't remember the last time a Marvel movie opened with four paragraphs of text that you had to read before you could start the movie. You know? Right. And it wasn't like a fun scroll, like a spaceship is chasing Princess Leia. <laughs> right. Was, the plans to the Death Star. It was just like, oh, my God, this is like weird mythology. And this all all of this come came from the mind of um, Jack Kirby. Jack Kirby, yeah. The Marvel, uh, the one of the co-creators of the of, of the Marvel Comics universe. But that shit developed over many issues of yeah. comics, you know, that I, admittedly, I'm not I wasn't a reader of the Eternals comic book. I was a small child living in Belgium when it came <laughs> out. I didn't have access to that stuff. But it's, but it's just kind of like they, they had to kind of cram it all in, into one movie. I don't know. I mean, maybe I didn't hate it as much. I mean, I, I like the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I, I'm, I'm a completist. I think I've seen every minute of every film and every TV show that they put out. And I'm sure that this will, there's some stuff at the end. I don't know if you stayed for the end credit sequences. Of course. Yeah. And the big gasp, the audience gasped when they saw the reveal at the end. There were a couple of good reveals and, you know, they're clearly going to incorporate Kit Harrington in kind of a more comprehensive and fun way. And, you know, now that we know these characters in the backstory, maybe it'll be better, but you know, they did the same thing with guardians of the galaxy that movie had so much um, wit and and it was so right. linear and and fun and, and it was like a it was like a good eighties movie. <laughs> right, 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 exactly. I mean, you know, I think also like if you comparing those two, Guardians had a lot of cocky misfits, right? And these guys are pretending to be cocky misfits, but they've been around for seven thousand years. I mean, that kept nagging in the back of my head. I kept thinking, why are they acting so? 
childish or why are they so rash? Why are they so impulsive? They've been around for 7,000 years. Have they picked up no wisdom, no patience, no insight into human nature? They're all acting rash and selfish. It, it was very odd. I mean, you know. It's a very weird movie. I mean, but then let's talk about the actual filmmaking itself. You know, Chloe Zhao who directed last year's Oscar-winning uh, movie, is suddenly directing, like, a, a movie about a, a god with laser eyes <laughs> flying around. And I felt like, so, you know, anybody could have done the action scenes. You know, they bring someone like her in for the interpersonal stuff. So the interpersonal stuff was the worst stuff in the movie. But, I mean, that's the thing. You say anybody could do the action. I mean, clearly Kevin Feige and his, his armies of CGI artists are basically directing half of any Marvel film. And you're right. These indie directors or Oscar-winning directors are brought in to give it some prestige, some polish, some humanity. I think she does to a point, you know? I mean, I think there are those obligatory scenes of superheroes walking through fields and touching hay and, you know, wheat, you know, that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, Selma Hayek rides up on a horse, you know? It, it, it felt very much like Nomadland and The Rider. There were moments of dappled sunlight and naturalism that you don't really see in Marvel movies. Now, was that a good or a bad thing? I think it was not really effective. I don't. It was all mixed end. up. You know, it's, it, was, it was all like mixed up with other stuff. Like the, the, the narrative had no real order. Like you were watching a movie and then all of a sudden you were like in ancient Babylon. What? They skipped through time a bit too much, I think, you know, for really no good reason. What was Thena's like? She had superhero PTSD or something that made her want to destroy everybody else. There was something about the Eternals like she remembered the past. Uh-huh. Before they came to Earth and she knew the truth in her back and kind of in the back of her mind. And so, like, it, it made her crazy. But then that went away yeah. because the thing stuck the thing in her, you know? Right, right, right. Exactly. And meantime, they keep going and, and having chats with this celestial who looks like the Iron Giant or something with six eyes. Right. He looks like a prog rock album cover. <laughs> Wasn't there a prog rock album cover that basically was this movie? I don't know. There's a lot of weird 70s sorts of visual design. Maybe it's just more the sense that in the 60s and 70s, stoners and psychedelics got much more into uh, interstellar philosophies and world building, you know, than they do now. Right. And this is very much a product of that time. Right. But this didn't have the um, it wasn't edgy like heavy metal. No, not at all. <laughs> this was about as, as edgy as, as a Nerf ball. It's very, <laughs> kind of a reference is that. It's a, it's a very strange movie. Hey, speaking of references, how did you feel about the DC references? We had oh, one no, character was, talk about Batman and you never talk about Superman. Superman. Yeah, it was really what, strange. What the hell is that? He's jumped the rails here, buddy. Yeah, you know, I, I've heard, you know, I, I we, we read an article about uh, multiverses and the guy who wrote it talked about how maybe, you know, the ultimate goal is to bring the Marvel and DC universes together. And yeah, I'm sure, sure, that would be fine. How about just throw Darth Vader in there, too? <laughs> well, now that Disney owns, you know, well, Disney owns Marvel. And have you noticed also in Disney movies, more Star Wars references are being used and yeah. more? We're, we're approaching we're approaching the singularity. Stephen. Yeah, it's all the same. It's a big bucket of entertainment. It's the monoculture is coming back with a vengeance. Yeah. And this 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 movie may have been um, the first uh, the first indication that that the monoculture is is here forever. Um, all right. Eternals. What a disaster. But whatever. You should see it anyway. Well, you know what? Honestly, like I enjoy seeing a movie like this almost more than I do in seeing a good movie. 
Yeah, I, I think if you don't take it that seriously and you have two and a half hours to kill and you're not really interested in that time being spent on like Dune world building, which is literally the same length. Yeah, have at it. And like you were saying with Kumail Nanjani, I mean, you know, a lot of these characters kind of wearing their performances lightly, you know, and it is fun that way. You know, you yeah. see them hanging out and sharing meals and cracking wise and eh, why not? Yeah, nobody nobody wore their performances in Dune lightly. I mean, obviously, like <laughs> except for Jason Momoa. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, a little a little light. Obviously, Dune was a better movie, but um, I think that this one will end up being more beloved in some ways. <laughs> <laughs> but not as weird and and irreverent as Gardens of the Galaxy or anything. It's not going for irreverence. I don't know what the hell it's going for. Really, really strange movie. Eternals is out now, and you're going to be able to watch it every day for the rest of your life on Disney Plus if you want to. <laughs> Don't do it. Don't do it to yourself. Don't do it. All right, Stephen. Catch you later. Thanks, man. <laughs> spend a lot of time at Book and Film Globe writing about new Netflix shows. There's an endless supply of them. A couple of weeks ago, we ran um, what I felt like was it was a good piece, but it was also like it was I wasn't a piece that I thought was going to get a huge amount of traffic on the animated sci-fi comedy inside job. But it has generated a lot of traffic for us and a lot of comments from readers and a lot of interest. And the author of that piece, William Schwartz, is here with me today. Hello, William. Hello, Neil. So tell us a little bit about Inside Job. What what exactly uh, is this show about, and 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 why do you think people are? You didn't even really like it that much. I'm wondering why people are, are responding to it so so much. Well, if I had to pick a reason, it would be well. The thing about lots of TV reviewing in general is that for the most part, people critics try to avoid reviewing things that they don't think they'll like. So you end up getting with a lot of positive stuff, positive fluff, and I. Don't do that stuff. I will savage something, even if I don't necessarily hate it as much, quite as much as it sounds, because this is a very brief positive in the piece. I did think that the dynamic between the lead three characters is strong. You got Reagan, who is this neurotic, wants to succeed in her career. She's a brilliant scientist, but she has no people skills whatsoever. Her father groomed her for the job, and it's basically abused for, like, her entire life, which she is aware of. She's old enough to understand that now she's 30. And then there's Brett, who is just a really sweet frat boy guy who wants people to like him. All right, so, you know, there's strong character premise, but the actual premise, premise of the show is that the conspiracy theories are real and that there's a government agency of some sort that manages them and keeps us, keeps us safe from them? Is that it actually appears to be a corporation, but I'm not sure there isn't that much in the world building. And I think that is the main thing that really frustrated me about Inside Job, the main point on the route, is that you actually listen to conspiracy theories. And what makes them fun is that they are in these huge, elaborate worlds that often go into very nonsensical directions. Like, as I mentioned in the opening for the review, you've got the Flat Earthers who believe that we are surrounded by Antarctica, that Antarctica isn't at the bottom of anything, that you just go far out from one direction and you run into Antarctica. And that's a really cool idea. It's obviously ridiculous, but they will go into these really convoluted ways to explain how it makes sense, like the Pac-Man theory, which is the reason we can't see the edge of the uh, on the end of the world is because we just loop around as if we're in Pac-Man. And Inside Jab irritates me in part because it has 
very shallow understandings of these ideas, but not any notion of how they work in context. Like the Pac-Man thing is actually mentioned in the Inside Job episode in the context of they're going to the edge. So I'm just scratching my head wondering, how do you know what the Pac-Man theory is, but don't understand that it replaces the idea of the edge. It doesn't coexist alongside the edge. You know, it sounds like you actually are fairly well versed in some of these conspiracy theories. So, so actually, like I am just doing the regular thing we all did back in the day of like reading Snopes for 10 or 20 minutes at a time. It's, it's You don't really need a lot of death to get into it. And in the age of the Internet, this kind of stuff, it is ridiculously easy to just spend maybe five minutes reading up on what the flat earthers are all about. Oh, that's moderately interesting. But Inside Jab only uses the conspiracy stuff to as a kind of window dressing. They're references. References in the style of, you pointed out in the piece, in the style of like Family Guy or other sort of hacky. Yeah, they don't really have anything to do with anything else. And they're even, they're contradicted surprisingly often, even about stuff that has nothing to do with conspiracy theories. Like there is one episode where they go to a town that is stuck in the 80s for some reason that doesn't even matter, I think, because it actually ends up being about how 80s nostalgia is bad. But in the very next episode, there is a gag where young Reagan tries to infect her pet turtles with radiation to turn them into Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It's a cute enough gag, but the entire premise of the previous episode is that Reagan was raised to not even know what 80s pop culture was. Right. And Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is a, is a prime pillar of 80s pop culture. Yeah. And there are so many references scattered throughout Inside Job that won't make any sense unless like if you're reading like random tweets, that's how low information most of these references are. There's references that I thought people didn't even make anymore because I thought they were well known enough to be wrong. Like, say, the Mayan calendar that everybody thinks is going to end the world. It's actually an Aztec calendar. I thought we all knew that by now. But then Inside Job goes out of its way to go, oh, look, this thing's behind the Mayan calendar. Like, they'll go out of their way to make the reference, even if it doesn't actually matter to anything. Like, you don't have to put it inside the story. Right. You know, what I find interesting about this is, you know, we're kind of in, I wouldn't say it's a golden age of sci-fi animated comedy. But, you know, after Futurama and Rick and Morty, I feel like the bar should be fairly high for something like this that incorporates like, you know, Elvis isn't dead and, 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 and Bigfoot and other other various like broad sci fi concepts. You, you feel like a show like this should be able to embrace that pretty readily. Well, the thing about it is you got to have at least some basic sense of internal world building. I think this is a big reason why fans latched on to Rick and Morty is because it actually at least have a pretty solid concept of word build, world building. They will take an absurd idea and expand it to all sorts of bizarre logical directions and context of the story, but absurd in any kind of real world context. And I think most of the more questionable Rick and Morty in episodes personally are the ones that don't really do that. They just... They go with the lowbrow concept and never really expand beyond it. Inside job you're saying is doesn't do that. Pitch, it's just pitches. They come up with the idea like what if lizard people were real and that's about it. Nothing even approaching ironic commentary or anything of the like. Yeah, I just find that, you know, I, I'm not a huge Rick and Morty fan myself, but when it's on, it's on. And then there's, you know, you have other sci-fi animated shows like, uh, you know, Star Trek Lower Decks on Paramount Plus, which is a, a terrific Star Trek cartoon comedy that I feel like you feel does a lot of what you feel like inside job should do. So, you know, it's not like there's not a template out there for doing this kind of show. 
I should note that Inside Job does have its moments. Like, the dynamic between the three lead characters is really good, but none of them do anything particularly redeemable, again, except for Brett, because Brett is a really nice guy. He is a frat boy with no real skills, except that he's a good people person because he's desperate to be liked. But there is nothing else about the corporation, nothing about the job, nothing about anything that suggests we should actually want Reagan to succeed because her goals are terrible and stupid and probably evil. And this is actually well documented with her father, who has basically been emotionally abusing her for most of his life, most of her life, at least. And it's more the kind of show you put on background, like Comedy Central did or used to run all those Futurama episodes, like just in constant loop. And that's what you did with them. You just turned it on the TV while you were doing other things. That's why they did that. That is like that's like the only audience they have now. And these days, South Park is better for that particular purpose than Futurama is. But it's very much a low penetration kind of show. It has some emotional beats. They're not really earned. But in terms of just the comedy thing, it's not really funny. But you're never going to watch any of it and just like laugh out loud. And the farther away it got from the character comedy and the more it just did the lazy references, the more I just got very bored and started screwing around with my phone. It's not terrible, but it is mediocre enough that you really have to dig into what exactly makes it bad. It requires effort. And I think most sane, sensible people don't want to put in that effort. But I do. It's my job. So. It's your job. You made the effort and you reviewed Inside Job, which is a sci-fi animated comedy that doesn't have very good sci-fi and isn't particularly funny, but your review is great and it's up on Book and Film Globe. William, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks to William Schwartz for talking to me about Inside Job, the new animated series on Netflix. And also thanks to Stephen Garrett for stopping in yet again to talk with me about Eternals, a bad Marvel Cinematic Universe movie that hundreds of millions of people are going to see anyway. We're going to close this week with the theme song to Inside Job. The show has its problems, but I will say that the theme song is kind of a modern industrial banger that I think you'll all enjoy. I'm Neil Pollock. I'm the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. Thanks for reading the site. Please don't ban us. We'll talk to you next week.